Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. You're very welcome to the first Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast of the Week. Oh, Mike Devitt here with Ken Erty. Hey, Owen, how are you? Not too bad. And a bleary-eyed Kieran Murphy. Kieran, how are you? Hello there, Owen. Where Hello were, there. Were you at a particularly late screening of Fifty Shades of Grey last night? <laughs> you know, a surprising amount of couples, I, I, I've been reliably informed, Murph, uh, went to see Fifty Shades of Grey together. Yeah. Why uh, is it surprising? I don't know. I would have thought it was more... Sort of a... Sort Maybe of a girls you got only you by event. yourself. Well, no, that groups of girls were, would go to. So that's very good. Not great reviews I've, I've, I've read so far, Ken. The funniest <laughs> thing I've read, I think, all year has been the. There was a, kind of a debrief on uh, the publicity campaign for Fifty Shades of Grey where it became abundantly clear that the two main stars hate each other's guts more than you could possibly imagine. Oh, really? So there's all of these unbelievably cringy, awkward exchanges between the two of them. I have to say, I laughed a lot. Um, uh, but no, no, uh, Owen, I wasn't. I, I mean, well, I'm, sorry, I think Ken wanted to come in there. I'm so. definitely going to go and see. I mean, oh, yeah. I, even though you, there's you, no question about that. But even though you know it's an awful move. Well, there's, there's, uh, I mean, I'll make up my own mind. Well, okay, but you would be the only reviewer that I'd have, have read or, or spoken to in person who would have, uh, would have complimented the movie. have your so. own ideas. I mean, I saw. I shouldn't, the, be ha- um, I shouldn't be hammering something I haven't, haven't seen, Ken, but I did once read two pages of uh, one of the Fifty Shades of Grey books. Yeah. Not um, over, not not blown away by the quality of writing, I must say. Well, look, it's something involving a snooker cue. Uh, <laughs> um, so maybe well, the, the, during a snooker game, actually, don't answer that question. I mean, I saw that it's got some very poor ratings, and say, for instance, IMDb. I mean, a lot a lot of the time, if you've got a movie which is based on a massively successful book, it will start off with quite high ratings, as all the fans of the book give it high ratings, and then the ratings sink as the haters of the book come in and give it zero. Mm. So it ends up about five, like, say, Twilight. But Fifty Shades of Grey, I think it's 3.8 now, <laughs> right. which suggests to me at Pretty such an early point that the, yeah, that, the, that the fans of the book must really <laughs> hate this movie. And uh, I'm quite looking forward to seeing it. Murph, that's say. not where you were last night, though. You were up no. all night watching sport. Uh, yeah, the Ireland cricket team, they've only gone and done it again on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, amazing victory against the, the West Indies. And I have to say, there's something about this team that is just... You know, you know the way you talk about uh, who, like, what are the teams that that traditionally have they've had a couple of FA Cup giant killings? I'm thinking like Yeovil. Well, Bradford City this this season. this weekend. Well, for instance, any of those teams, you say, well, Bradford are, were in the Premier League a couple of years ago. I mean, you do have there are some teams. We'll say Wrexham, right? Uh, they've had a couple of giant killings over the years, and that's amazing. People say, oh, you know, they're always good for an FA Cup giant killing act. Um, but the Irish cricket team, they don't. Their players are semi-professional. Their players are not as good as the players that they meet at World Cups. But they can't look on that as an excuse. They can't say, "Oh well, you know, if we win one game over there and we upset a few people, that's fine. You know, job done." They they put pressure on themselves to win these games because they want to be a full member. They want to play full Test matches. So 
they're not as good as the teams that they're playing over there, and yet they put themselves under ferocious pressure to beat these teams because they think it's the future of their sport is in their hands, and they go and do it, and they've done it at three consecutive World Cups. And, you know, I was watching it on Sky Sports, and David Lloyd is on it, uh, you know, before the game starts, and he says, you know, I make Ireland favourites for this game. And why would you do that? That's, that's an outrageous, ridiculous thing to say, because the West Indies are, you know, they're a professional team, and you, you just, by any metric, they should be winning that game. And yet, people have this idea of Ireland as, oh, you know, the giant killers, and they backed them kind of on a on a hunch, like they, like maybe what happened last night. And Ireland go out and actually do this. I've got a comparison for you from another sport. Go on, hit me. The Argentinian rugby team of about maybe eight years ago. Yeah. This set before they were really welcomed in fully to the rugby establishment, will be playing every single game as though they were playing for their place yeah. uh, within the sport. Yeah, and which is a powerful enough, um, <clears throat> power, and that can't that alone isn't going to win. You obviously have to be organised and have talent and all those kind of things. But uh, it's a pretty powerful force too. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's one thing to have a cause for a game, but it's another thing altogether to have a cause across eight years and three World Cups that you just non-stop. That that's that's what drives you, and that's what continues to drive you. But I mean, this stat was doing the rounds on Twitter last night. There have been five successful run chases of over three hundred in the Cricket World Cup and three of them have been by Ireland <laughs> that's completely ridiculous utterly utterly ridiculous but uh, you do have to say um, yeah just uh, they're, they're an extraordinary bunch of people well let's just stay on this team for now because I believe uh, that Ireland's win has given you one of these you're a real Irishman you get the potato yeah. I left in your dressing room there I got the potatoes yeah. and the puccine huh? and the puccine oh yeah there you are <laughs> and bread yeah so it's a hot off the presses P. Bezzo for you now on And it's from Irish actor Michael Keane uh, Best known for his part in Mr. Turner I haven't seen the movie So I don't know if there's a role for a ruddy-faced Irish everyman But I'm going to trust his Twitter <laughs> bio And IMDb in fairness I have checked this guy out So Michael Keane I presume he pronounces it Michael Keane I suppose I think there already is a Michael Keane uh, So he was at the cricket And uh, he has sent us an email Dear the lads I'm a long time listener First time emailer Good time, Japester. Actors. Anyway, I'm a big fan of the show and very much enjoyed last year's World Cup specials, particularly learning of Ken's inability to pass a week abroad without some kind of travel disaster befalling him. However, I don't recall any World Cup P-Bezzles, therefore I submit what I hope will be your first P-Bezzle from a World Cup, specifically Ireland's victory over the West Indies in Nelson. Here I am, complete with sunburn, hashtag P-Bezzle sign, and an Ireland star, Andy McBrien's uh, in one picture, and Max Sorensen is in the other. Sorry, that one's blurry. My mate Rowan had drink taken at that stage. Mate Rowan. <laughs> Actors. Keep up the good work. May the road rise to meet you. Far from us be the evil thing, and let the bad spirit never look upon you as a brother. And may Ireland win at least two World Cups this year. Uh, Michael Kane. Keane. Now we'll go with Kane. Yeah. Thank you, Michael, for that. And the very best of luck to you uh, in your acting career. Just please... Don't get typecast as ruddy-faced Irish everyman. Colin Meaney's got to work too, you know. So I'm sorry, this is very, uh, this is very up-to-date. Oh, this I mean, is from the cricket match last Talking last about two hours ago, yeah. Oh, uh, so he's, he's pictured on the side it's of the email, field. It's email, Owen. It's, no, it's, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. Communication. <laughs> and then we're putting this podcast out today. This is all, all going to be within a 12-hour period. Unbelievable. It the is. The speed at which Monica The turnaround on this P-Bezzle is unbelievable. But there, there he is on the sideline, uh, wearing Ireland's uh, rather naff, uh, fluorescent green jersey and uh, uh, yeah Andy McBride is like waving in the background uh, at him as he's taking well the you've set a new, new standard there Michael Kane, for mid-game P-Bezzles we haven't had his enough of those his name is Michael Kane. on <laughs> good start for the cricketers the Irish rugby team march on towards a grand slam Brian O'Driscoll tweeted this team absolute, absolutely has a slam in them and who knows what else he says tantalisingly not sure Joe Schmidt that was put to Joe Schmidt uh, afterwards and he was like yeah uh, thanks Brian Really, really appreciate the the extra pressure there. But as is usually the case these days, Schmidt's team outsmarted their opponents again at the Aviva Stadium. Not much of a challenge in this case. Kind of like outsmarting a slowly moving boulder. I mean, intellectually, not much of a challenge. Obviously, physically, quite a challenge. And that's something we're going to talk about because we'll chat about Ireland's performance with Dennis Hickey and Jerry Thorney, both in studio in a minute. I'll be asking them about the level of physical punishment in that game and in the sport in general, even over the course of this weekend, the Sex and Bastro dynamic was the dominant storyline before, during and after the Ireland-France match and specifically Sexton's ability to withstand intense physical punishment and still perform at a high level. Those Pascal Pape's 
just playing filthy knee into the back of Jamie Heaslip. Mike, Mike Brown accidentally knocked out against Italy. Three concussions in the Leinster Dragons game, including one of these ones where a player comes back on and has to go back off again. The, the primal physical element now seems to be, I would say, the defining aspect of the sport, more so. It was always an element of it, but it seems now that that's almost what everyone's watching out for and uh, and waiting almost with bated breath for something to happen at this stage. So we'll chat about that with the lads in just a little while. I'm also going to talk about the opening weekend of the Allianz Hurling League, Murph, in particular Dublin's victory over Tip. Yeah, and I mean, the the whole idea of uh, replacing Anthony Daly was, looked, that looked like it could be one of the, the key narratives. And how, how, as a county board, do you go about trying to find someone like Daly? Do, do you try and find someone like Daly or do you go a totally different way? And what they did in the end was hire Jerconium, a guy who maybe has a more cerebral approach to to management. And, you know, they did very well in the World Cup, Lost only lost the final by a couple of points to a late goal at rally uh, last week and started exceptionally yesterday, really, really well. Uh, 220 to 14 points uh, victories over Tipperary and Tip came with a very strong team as well. And it just it kind of interesting what he's done with the team as well in that Dublin have a couple of really top-class hurlers, all-stars over the last number of years. And he's moved them around. Liam Rush is playing at full forward. Peter Kelly's playing at centre-back. Uh, Mikey Carton has gone from wing-back to full-back. And really, you make a rod for your own back when you make changes like that with some of your best players. The fact that he's done it to such good effect... Uh, it's kind of well, definitely the most interesting thing that came out of the first round of the the league. Well, there are a couple of things you can do when you come in as a new manager. Maybe three things you can absolutely start from scratch. You can you can bring in your whole a whole new panel, which is never re- realistically going to be workable unless mm. there are specific uh, uh, reasons. A clear out, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. If there's some problems with player power, etc. And even at that, usually when a new manager comes in, he'll judge for himself. You can leave pretty much well enough alone, which sometimes is the thing to do. Yeah. Some managers have done that, and that's been the right thing to do at that particular time. Or you can do what uh, Cunningham seems to have done, and that's just completely if this is the team that ends up playing in the championship it's the same team in some ways but completely different uh, in that there'll be familiar personnel but playing in very different positions and changing the personality and dynamic of it quite a lot so we'll see what happens with that but we'll chat a little bit about that with Chrissy in just a while Jerry Thornley and Dennis Hickey meanwhile have called into us lads thanks for popping in Pleasure. Jerry, going to kick off with a quote from your piece today. At the end, Ireland were still standing, which was almost as much of an achievement as a second successive win in this year's Six Nations. It was, as you say yourself, brutally physical. Are you worried? There there are quite a few incidents of of potentially serious enough injuries over the course of the weekend. Are you worried the sport as a whole is becoming too violent? Um, Yeah. I mean, I think that rugby has... Um, improved in terms of discipline with all the video and analysis doing around with all the TMOs with all the um, players do behave themselves more there's, there's an awful lot more cheap shots going on in the game in the past than there is now there's less um, overt violence although you still get a cheap shot like Pascal Pape's on Jamie Heasup I would be surprised if he isn't cited for this I think if the game is, remains on top of instances like that and players are cited it, it acts as a deterrent in future what would concern me is the way that the the players are just going in so high into collisions now because of this trying to ball and all prevent offloads. And you take a player like Bastro, with whom Johnny Sexton seems to be forever running into now. I mean, you know, both in last year's game in Paris and, and on Saturday. I just think on occasions Bastro leads with a forearm or goes in head high in a tackle. I mean, I don't think... I'm not saying he's a dirty player or a malicious player, but I do think that this is symptomatic of the way players are now going into collisions. Very upright, very head first. And it is making for... You know, more collisions like you see in Saturday and more danger in the game, I think, for players. And when I say violence, Dennis, Jerry makes a distinction there. I don't necessarily mean foul play, but just the the way the sport is going at the moment. I mean, say even the sexton Bastero dynamic, it dominated the build-up. We were wondering how a guy coming back from concussion was going to deal with one of the biggest men and one of the biggest backs in world rugby running down his channel, as was flagged up before the game. Uh it happened as predicted, and he, and as predicted, Johnny Sexton held up heroically against the, the the sort of constant physical pressure. But is this what people are going to actually are, are going to rugby matches for now, rather than going to see attractive attacking rugby? We're all kind of going whether, whether watching on TV or going to games, actually really kind of looking out for for the physical battle. Well, it certainly seems to be a feature of rugby this season, um, and it's you know the debate around the. Um, um, 
the, the the increase in I suppose in attrition between players is is I don't think it's ever been as much at the forefront as it is now. I, I think there's two elements in play. I think first of all the game has got more physical. I think it's just physics. Guys are bigger and they're more powerful. Um, so you know they're running harder. And as, as Jerry said, the technique is not what it was 20 years ago where you were taught to ta- tackle around the angles. Now you're taught to try and tackle as high as you can and stop the ball. Um, and obviously when you've got two very large professional players running a full tilt, you know one is trying to run over the other guy and the other guy is trying to hold him up, that's what's going to happen. I think the, the second part of it though is is that the protocols now are so... Protocols are, are much stronger, much more rigid. So I think there is a... Um, uh, I think what we see now is players being taken off the pitch a lot more for head injuries or for showing any sort of symptoms, rightfully, I should say, mm-hmm. um, of any sort of maybe uh, showing any sort of signs of of having been in, a, in a, um, a big collision than would have happened before. What would have happened before would be those protocols weren't as strict. It was much more discretionary. Players were saying, oh, I'm fine. Um, and then kind of talking about after, saying, oh, gee, I don't remember a lot of that game. Whereas now, as soon as, as, soon as a collision happens, any sort of symptom, they're off. So, so you have this. You have now this added layer of players, kind of on rotation, going off the pitch. So it just seems like well, there's another guy going off, another guy going off. And I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that anyone's exaggerating it or or, or um, quite the opposite. It's just that I don't think those protocols were as strict five, ten years ago. Um, uh, and as a result, you just didn't see that level of vo- that volume of uh, of incidents. But as a, and concussion is part of it, and we discussed concussion a little bit. Concussion a little bit last week, or in quite in quite a bit of depth last week. But as a former player, mm. somebody who really likes the game, you've outlined where it's at at the moment. Is it a concern to you? Do you think it has changed to the point that, or is in the process of changing to a point that actually needs to be rolled back from somehow? Um, I think. The jury's still out a bit on that. I wait to see how this plays out. Maybe over this season, next season, um, because often, um, you know, I, I think for large for uh, as long as I've been playing or as long as I've been watching, there's always been a a a, um, a stream of particular injuries that seem to come through. One year, this guy's doing a shoulder. Re- every the guys get a shoulder reconstruction, and there's a spate of knee injuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, there seems to be obviously a huge focus on on head injuries at the moment. Uh, so if it continues, I think the, the the governing body will do something about it. Well, they um, have to, don't they? In, in yeah. a sense, because it, the, although it's almost. It's re- it's remorseless, isn't it? You see, mm. France being on two props and a, and a lock, and they weighed over four hundred kg between yeah. them. It's and physics, like, like it's just. Yeah. <laughs> and France are typical of any team now. They're like almost like South Africa. They've completely betrayed their heritage, and they just want to run through every team. Now. I'm finding mm. myself even watching the sport this season, in particular, in a slightly different way. Yeah. You're even more concerned for players than you might have been in the past. It seems to me that the physical element, to use the word that's usually used, was always a massive part mm-hmm. of rugby, but is almost the central part now. As I said, the even the build-up to the to the Sexton Bastero storyline, what actually happened during the game, uh, which was nothing illegitimate on, on on either part. But it was unsavory and it was provocative uh, and it was unnecessary. Uh, as in the French build-up yes. to it, it's saying they're going to target him, etc. Yeah. It seemed yeah. that Schmidt and Schmidt and Sexton both were quite irritable after the game, well, more so than Schmidt was very ir- irritated well, by it all. Yeah, I think I think that there's um, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, whatever I suppose, because some people would say it's a positive. There is an issue um, with the fact that now people are are calling concussions from all sorts of vantage points. Like the people whose is opinions matter, and the people who, who whose um, opinion should be relied on the medical staff shouldn't be people um, commentating on the game or talking about the game that build up to the game. Like everyone's an, an expert on concussion now. Mm. Like I'm walking down the street. What about all these concussions? Oh, this guy was concussed. That guy was concussed. Everyone's concussed. Um, and the only people who know if you're concussed are the doctors who are treating you. Um, but, you know, even commenting on the match and, and uh, or listening to, to, to a, comment, a live commentary of the match, oh, you know, such and such is concussed. How anyone can tell that sitting up in a row, queue of the stand, um, when the doctor hasn't 
uh, when a, a medical doctor whose whose entire profession is is is, is focused on that hasn't made a, drawn any conclusions. Yeah, it seems it's, to, it's irresponsible. It seems Schmidt and Sexton were particularly annoyed with Lauren Benazesh, the former Friends yeah. International. He was uh, quoted in the Irish Times last yeah. week and uh, subsequently on News Talk, uh, questioning the decision to put Sexton back into the. Back into the team after that long concussion layoff. Well, I, I think that, you know, but I do think it's ridiculous. Obviously, he's entitled to his opinion, but he's not. I don't think he's entitled to say that that players uh, that, or that coaches have no regard for their we- for their players' welfare, or the medical staff don't have any regard for the players' welfare, because it's it's a. You know, that's exactly what they're saying. They're saying that the Irish medical doc, you know, the Irish medical staff or the French medical staff, whoever has been looking after Johnny Sexton, has actually. Uh, is willing to risk their play, a player's health for a game, and I don't think anyone is willing to do that. I've, I've, well, I don't think. I, I, sorry, I should even say I don't think. I know no doctor is willing to do that, um, and I know some of the medical staff involved in the Irish setup. There's no, there's absolutely no doubt if they didn't think that uh, player, and even focusing on Johnny Sexton is probably too much. But he's the, he's the man in the he's a man in the middle at the moment. If they didn't think he was able to play, they wouldn't play him. It's just that simple. It's that simple. If he, right, if he was at risk, yeah. they wouldn't play him. Yeah, he know? was passed by a neurologist. Yeah. Only the same neurologist who suggested yeah. or decreed that he should be off the pitch for twelve weeks. I think there's a couple of things at work here. For example, the there have been a lot more publicity about it, more highlighted about it because we see what's happened. The George North one, for example. Yeah. Um, now that happened big partly because the Welsh medical staff had not no access to a screen to see their video when the doctor ran onto the pitch. The RFU have actually introduced a scheme whereby when Ina Halvey runs on the pitch, he's been fed information into his ears from other medics in the stand who have watched the incident, what, what happened there, and explained how the player went down, whether it was a clash of heads or whatever. And so that's actually an innovation that the RFU brought in, which well, the RFU well, actually... How long has that been there? Has it been it's been there, there all this season, I know. Right, okay, yeah. And, and I, I think that's something you know, that should be mentioned here in the sense that there are, the game is coming from a long, long way behind, way for, further behind than it should do. You highlighted in great detail last week and players even are becoming much more aware of it which is the main factor and they're becoming more educated about it but just to go the whole kind of sense of the high rate of collisions in the game and the way it's becoming there are more instances of players getting hit higher up in their bodies and their heads I do think one small thing the RB should start considering doing is kind of reminding referees that to lead with the forearm when you're the ball carrier is and always has been actually illegal in the loss of the game. You know, the handoff has been, has been mm. allowed, but forearms haven't. Yeah. And if they become blurred and referees are allowing them to happen, that'll be one small thing. Eddie Butler made the point in commentary on the Wales-Scotland game yesterday that you could go a step further and just lower the level at which it's legal, the height at which it's legal to tackle a player. Because as you say, everyone's tackled high these days and it seems to be getting higher and higher there's a thin line between what a, what's a deemed a high tackle and what's deemed a fair tackle now I don't know how low Eddie Butler necessarily wants the tackle to be <laughs> presumably you're allowed to go above the ankles somewhere but is there something in that that you have to somehow reduce the everyone's and it's not just the as Jerry said it's it's both the attacking player and the defensive player are both essentially willing to go in head high well I'm not I haven't heard that particular um, uh, idea but I think in general, the game has evolved and is constantly evolving. Um, it's unrecognisable to what it was 20 years ago. 10 years ago, is completely different. In another 10 years, it'll be different again. And I think the IRB have increasingly, over the, uh, over the last 10 years, certainly uh, since the game has gone professional in the last 15, 20 years, have shown a willingness and ability to change the rules of the game when they need to. Either for the good of the game to make it, to, to speed it up. We saw a big change in the rules after the 2007 World Cup, which was dominated by... Kicking. Huge amounts of kicking, so they change the defensive rules, and you know I think they'll 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 definitely be looking at all aspects of this um, because uh, from from their perspective, they, they, you know their their first uh, their first obligation and their first um, what they'll be trying to do first and foremost is protect players. They want players who are who are currently playing to be able to play the game in a safe environment, but they also want to make sure that people are continue to be attracted to the game and. While it does not follow that, that um, because the 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 game at the highest level has got so physical and there's a, there's an increase in the, in in in, in incidences uh, of these sort of injuries, it doesn't follow that that's going to follow all the way trickle all the way down to schoolboy rugby or to junior rugby. You know, you're talking about the elite of the elite, the most physically developed guys, the guys who are who are playing on the edge of 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 medical safety pretty much all the time, um, but. You know they're they'll be acutely aware of the fact that it, it's not good for the game that players are getting injured 
in in a public arena such as the way they are now. So if I I'd have confidence that if they if they feel that they should change the game, that they will change. The game. All right, let's talk about the rugby itself. Let's, let's talk about rugby. Yeah. Let's yeah. talk yeah. a little bit about the rugby, Jerry. The mental strength that Ireland have shown. I don't know if it's been commented on as much as maybe some of the other aspects, the organisation, the the accuracy, these kind of things. But it seems like. Whether it was the New Zealand game losing yeah. the New Zealand game, maybe that in the long run that might the have been the best thing that ever happened. The, the because, sheer pain of it—it yeah, yeah, it seems to be haunting them, spooking them forever, yeah. to never let it happen again. Almost as soon never, as you yeah. started that sentence, my mind immediately right. went back to the New Zealand game. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's what—that's what I think. The players, when you listen to it, they reference that so often. The pain of that was so acute. They just came in and said, "Right, that's never going to happen again." Which, uh, which I'm sure players say all the time, but they've yeah. actually made—they've yeah. gone and made well, it happen. And, the old and, adage: and you learn more from your defeats yeah. than you do from your wins. So you know, and they've now won nine in a row since. And they've won their last seven. I mean, they've, they've won sorry, nine in a row as of, after the England game. I think the England one hurt them as well, the two combined last mm. year. So they, you, you're right. I mean, winning is a habit, just like losing. And they have a mental strength now to see out tough end games and come through because a lot of those games have been one score affairs. And little, the little details that have helped them along the way have been immeasurable. And the reverse restarts yielded three returns at the weekend and two of those led indirectly to three points by Johnny Sexton in an 18-11 game that's, you know, that's, that's imperative as is the 100% kicking return from the place kickers all three of them in the two matches to date and indeed I think Johnny Sexton was 12 from 13 in the autumn against South Africa and Australia again in all these narrow games little details of that so they're, they're, they're winning fine, fine margins which is what normally is the case anyway in big test match rugby and they're, they're particularly coming through there's a, there's a sense now you're watching them in the end game now particularly at home in the Aviva Stadium the crowd are racking them that they're just not going to let a team through no matter what they throw at them and it's partly to do with that New Zealand game and France were throwing the kitchen sink at them and yet you felt they were going to survive once they got back to 15 men were you, yeah, were you comfortable did you feel Ireland were comfortable enough at the end Dennis or were you concerned um, no I, I, did, I hadn't seen anything um well, I certainly hadn't seen anything from France um, during the game that, that made me think that they, they were going to all of a sudden unlock the Irish defence. Um, I think that's a big challenge for, for Ireland next week. I think that they've, um, as you said, they've shown an amazing ability to, to, to close out games and just make sure that the other teams you know, can't claw them back when they get ahead. But I think against England, you're, you're facing a completely different attacking challenge. You know, Italy pose very limited attacking threats. Um uh, although they're trying to play a more attacking rugby, they just don't necessarily have the skills or the players to to to, to be able to un- unlock a, a defence as as stingy as Ireland and France. Unfortunately, you know, for for from a rugby perspective, have again you know, they showed very little invention. They sold, um, sold, isn't it? Yeah, really, it's very it's very sad. Yeah, it? well, it is. Yeah, oh, I, lo- I know a lot of French fans. Who, you know, a couple of got tickets for and talked to them afterwards, and they just. They've absolutely no faith in this regime. This this, this rub brand of rugby they're doing just they can't identify with. They want Santa Andre gone, and we want him to stay. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I think it's a real case of um, the sum of the parts is not as good as the, yeah. uh, as the individuals. They have fantastic players, individual players, yeah. but you know they don't play a you know they, they don't play in a way that is um, that gets the most out of them um, because that's just their, their their game plan. But I think England. Uh, present a completely different challenge in that regard. I think they, England have some really fantastic attacking backs and they showed a willingness to attack through their backs. And um, I think they'll be looking at Ireland saying these guys haven't been tested uh, out wide in this tournament yet and we're, we're going to be the team that's going to do that. Um, they still, like Ireland still has a very uh, new and you could say untested in many ways a midfield par- uh, partnership. You know, obviously they, they held up very well uh, against South Africa and Australia during the summer. Uh, sorry, during the uh, November, although you know Jared Payne obviously left the field very early against Australia, um, but there is a you know there's there's a you know if if you're England, that's an area you're thinking. Well, you know we have to we have to put these guys under pressure. and We have to see can they cope with it with a with a, an attack that has much more invention that they've had to deal with today so far in this tournament. Is the, is the midfield situation sorted? Is that the centre partnership that looks like it? It's clearly what Joe's going for at the moment. But are you impressed enough with them so far? Um, well, I think I think it's certainly uh, to the first part of your question. I think it's certainly his preferred combination at the moment. I think he's going to try and build on that. Um, I think, and I mean this in the in the best possible way. I think um, their success at the moment is maybe you know the the success of the partnership is is still a work in progress. I think it's still as yet necessarily you know it's not entirely proved. I don't think we've seen a huge amount of line breaks from. From from it so far, we haven't seen massive amounts of of space created. 
through the work of the uh, midfield partnership. I think you know individually they both played very well. Defensively, we've been very good. I thought Robbie Henshaw was very good in go forward against Australia, and his willingness to work in attack, sorry, in defence in particular against France. You know, he was he's such a hungry player. When he hits a guy, he's straight on the ball, and he's physical, and he's you know he's fast. Um, but I you know I can't point to to any great. Uh, I can't point so far to what I see. No, you're just you're just waiting for one of the for the big test to happen, which is going to be against. Yeah, I, I just think that you know, and I think they've stepped up. They've they met every challenge they've needed to. But you know, I don't. You know, I haven't seen any fantastic outside break or some big line busts or some uh, or, uh, so far in the. Yeah, from, from anybody really, or for, certainly from any of the Irish players. Interestingly, Shane Horgan yesterday on TV was talking about the. It was highlighting the uh, butchered chance that uh, Johnny Sexton ended up throwing sort of at, at Jared Payne's head yesterday, and he highlighted the French unorthodox defensive setup for that and was making the point that actually England being a more orthodox defence might play into Ireland's hands more and we might be better able to create line breaks and to create chances against them whereas because France in a way uh, it's counterintuitive but because France were set up in in a slightly unorthodox fashion it was actually a bit more difficult for Ireland to really get a read on how to attack them Yeah and Jackson was talking about that afterwards very interesting and particularly about that opportunity and he was acutely conscious of the way Uge was lining up in defence and potentially going for the interceptors why he didn't want to risk the landscape pass and why he was he was weighing up his options but he was very acutely he could read that and he might have it might have been the best thing that he didn't throw out a landscape pass or didn't clear Jared Payne because who knows maybe Uge would have picked it up and gone down the other end and that would have been um, a hammer blow in many respects and again we're going down to five, fine margins so yes maybe they could there's no that Ireland need to add an awful lot more to their attacking game than we've seen thus far uh, no less than France to degree Ireland have only scored two tries in this championship and that was both against Italy and both when Italy were down to 14 men France has scored one try in this championship when Ireland were down to 14 men it seems like it's the only way you can score tries now um, unless you're playing against Italy or the opposition are down to 14 men it's very hard to score tries are well down this season so it's not uniquely an Irish problem but Dennis is absolutely right the big thing for England was once they brought George Ford in at 10 instead of Farrell it's, the ball is just going through the 10 channel so much quicker isn't it yeah. and Joseph is giving them Jonathan Joseph is giving them real yeah. pace and real footwork at centre as is Johnny May in the wing and they have been the most I mean, it's unusual to say this about England but they have undoubtedly been the most creative potent team in the championship thus far by distance yeah like, and I should say as well like, I don't see I don't, I don't I'm not suggesting for a second that, that the Irish team or the Irish management are saying that they finished article on the back so I don't think they're saying that at all. I think a lot of that's kind of commentary from outside the team. I think they've they you know they consistently say, you know, we have to improve our performance um week on week and what we did last time and I'm sure they'll be looking at the England game and saying, you know, we have to improve our attacking performance in the backs uh, over and above how we performed against France. I've no doubt they're saying that. But I think England have a very um uh, England are really benefiting from having a lot of foreign players in their side. You know, they went to Wales with, in the back line, four, maybe five of the back line had never played in Cardiff. Uh, and Cardiff is a very, very difficult place to play. It's an incredibly intimidating place. It's it's a, it's a fantastic place, but it's, but it's um, to bring four guys who, who have very limited caps and have never played in Cardiff and perform the way they did. Um, what they what they managed to do is what what um, you know that that Wales England game. I saw that as a as a game of between repu- reputation versus form. Um, a lot of the Welsh guys hadn't really been had, had fantastic form coming into that game, whereas England. Their players were not household names. They hadn't been on the Lions tours. They hadn't had Grand Slam championships. But they were four of them were playing for Bath, the informed team uh, in England, and certainly probably the most attacking-minded team in, in in the second half of the European competition. And they've carried that form into the into the Six Nations so far. And and so they 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 do bring players that at the moment have a huge amount of confidence. They've got those units, the ten. You know, they they have Ford and, and Joseph. Uh, and the guys from the other guys from Bath as well, uh, you know, uh, the fullback on the wing. So, well, not sorry, not fullback. Mike Brown is there, but they just do do have this um, core group of guys, uh, especially in the backs, that are playing with great attacking flair. And uh, you know, you would expect them to to continue that uh, application into this game. Just on the uh, the Irish backline, as you said, they wouldn't claim to the finished article themselves. But it seems like Zebo and Tommy Bow, while playing. We know these guys better for uh, players certainly earlier in their careers, getting on the end of, of moves, finishing scoring tries, all those sort of things. They, they, you, you can't just rely on that under Joe Schmidt, and we probably saw that in its pure essence at the weekend. Well, I think one of the the, the key battles I was looking at going into that match last weekend was the, 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 the battles of the back three. Um, and I thought France have... A, 
France had three very talented players, uh, and Teddy Thomas and um, uh, and Spedding, who you know is one of the, is obviously a foreign player uh, playing for Bayonne, and then Huger as well. I thought he was he was probably one of France's best players against Scotland, but I think as a unit. I don't think they were as good as the Irish back three, and I thought that was going to be a key battle. Uh, and Teddy Thomas, I thought, you know, he went off injured, but you know, he was hadn't made much of an impact. Yeah, I do, I just don't think they've worked together as well as the back three. And I think our, Joe Schmidt puts the the Irish back three under a huge amount of pressure to deliver two or three key in two or three key areas of the game. First of all, their their, their core job of fill, finishing off and and being you know trail running for for attack. But Ireland's kicking game and their kick chase game and the way they deal with counter-attacking um, has has just come on so much under Joe Schmidt. It was a huge part of Leinster's game when Joe Schmidt was coaching Leinster with Naseo and Carney and Horgan and, uh, and Luke Fitzgerald. And that level of, of um, that importance of that unit has, has, I don't think has ever been as, I don't think has ever been as important to, to those uh, as it is now to this Irish team catching box, box kicks, regaining possession, which is what they use their kicking game to do. They challenge uh, in the air. And the, the three guys in particular who are playing at the moment are are among the best at that, I would say, in the world. They're all, they've all played a huge amount uh, either in those positions or at full-back. They're very comfortable in the high ball. And, incredi- you know, and most importantly, they're very comfortable under the high ball going forward, which is an incredibly difficult skill to be running at full tilt, keeping an eye on the ball, and then going up to challenge and win the ball back. Um, and I expect Ireland to continue to use that against um, against England. England dealt with actually very well last year when they turned Ireland over. Mike Brown, former player of the Championship, had an amazing game last year. Um, but, you know, the England have a have a newer back three this year, so I expect that again to be a key battle. And newer back three, uh, the back lines in, in general, Jerry, is it arguable that England possibly have the better level of talent player for player? I don't know about that. I still think there's an awful lot more in this Irish backline and we shouldn't forget that in the autumn Ireland did score two tries each against both South Africa and Australia. It's not that they've forgotten the art. There was always a case that with Johnny Sexton only just coming back into the fray, Sean O'Brien, Jamie Heaslip, who sadly Ireland may now have lost, you know, that Keen Healy came back in, that they were always going to get better as the championship progressed and find more cohesion and brand new midfield partnership. We've got to remember that's only their second ever game together. It's only Robbie Hench's third ever match at inside centre. It's remarkable what he's achieved. I mean, this is his first Six Nations and he just brings so much physicality and presence and clearly he's revelling in it. You can see that he's really revelling in it and I think he and Payne, Payne has shown... He's, Payne's got a wonderful sense of timing. He times his runs really well. He's got good hands. He's a clever footballer. He's one of those rare rugby players that always seems to have time on the ball and we know what Tommy Bowe's about and we know what Rob Carney's about and Simon Zeeman's about. So I do think you'll, you'll see more... What I wouldn't mind seeing is a Luke Fitzgerald or maybe even a Keith Earls on the bench just to give him a little bit more of an X-factor, a footwork option off the bench. You know, Ireland have been very good front runners now against Australia, South Africa, Italy and France. They've led all the way. They've got the scoreboard ticking. Classic rugby 3-6-9 build up on the scoreboard, get in front and they're very good front runners even though they allowed Australia back into the game from a big lead. Um, we haven't seen them try to play catch-up or come from behind yet. England have won the last four meetings between the sides. If they were to get ahead, I wouldn't mind seeing um, a Keith Earl. So just a player who can beat a man one-on-one. There's a lack of, little bit of a lack of footwork in, in some of the back line, as was inevitable when you lose Brian O'Driscoll and maybe Gordon Darcy as well. But I just would, you would like to see maybe a little bit more of that in the mix. Yeah, yeah. Like I think Luke Fitzgerald still has a huge amount to offer. Um, and, he, you know, I see him, he's, he's in and around the squad. He's warming up at the side. Uh, you know he's down to twenty two, but he's he's clearly um, I think that's just more of a of who needs to be on the bench to cover various positions. So he's he's obviously pretty close, and I, and I think you know you might see him at some point in the championship. Um, hard obviously to change a winning side, but uh, yeah, I, I would agree with Jerry maybe on that. You know, what will Ireland be able to uh, chase down a lead if they have to uh, against a side that has a defence as effective as theirs is, and I think the England English defence, particularly against Wales, showed. Um, Showed how mean it can be when it needs to be, and they'll they'll certainly tighten things up after their performance against Italy. They'll be you know they'll be very hard on themselves. I would imagine after conceding tries against Italy that they wouldn't have conceded against Wales, and uh, so you can you can expect them in an away match to be much more focused on that. Um, I think one of the key areas for this weekend, uh, Joe Schmidt mentioned well, it I suppose indirectly, and I thought France France were for were were excellent in this regard, um, probably as 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 good as. 
any French team I've seen, and this is it was competing for Ireland's ball on the ground. Yeah, they caused Ireland huge. I don't think I've ever seen Ireland give away, away as many penalties for holding on the ground, or for going off your feet trying to in a, in a, in, a, in, a, in a scrambling effort to try and clear the ball. And Ireland's, you know, that's that's a very clear tactical um, uh, decision from a coach to say you stop Ireland having that quick ball and you really stop them playing and I think if you're England you're looking you're looking at that part of the game and saying look at the look at the change France you know France got from here we have to go after them at the breakdown we have to draw them into uh, committing numbers to the rooks and we have to you know they'll be very mindful now of giving away penalties referees will be looking at Ireland at the breakdown area so that'll be a you know it's always a critical area Paul O'Connell I don't think I've ever heard him interviewed after a match mm. for Munster or for um for Ireland, he has mentioned the, the the battle of the breakdown, uh, and I think it's going to be you know it's going to be a key area, if not the key area, for for Ireland to win. All right, we've uh, we've a couple of weeks to get excited about that one. Dennis, Jerry, brilliant stuff. Thanks, Mill. Cheers. In the final on it again, and Can you send me on an interesting piece from the Super Bowl, which may have some relevance to rugby at the moment? And Nathaniel Rich was the name of the author uh, of this piece. Uh, and that's essentially, well, really, he was putting supporters into the middle of uh, how we watch sport and whether maybe we're somewhat complicit in what we see out there. In this, in the, in the, this is specifically regarding the NFL, in the violent extremes of the sport. But you, know, you, you could maybe explain a little bit about what Nathaniel said. Well, he was essentially it. making the point. That, I mean, he, he started off by talking about the sheer size of the Super Bowl as a media event in the United States and how it kind of completely dominates everything else and is by far the biggest story in the country for almost weeks leading up to it. And it's then asking, what exactly is it that's so fascinating about this? You know, why, uh, why Why is this so popular? It's not the pace of the game because it's the slowest game in the world and contains an of ads. It's not the strategy of the game, which is too complicated for most supporters to even understand and actually um, isn't as good for that type of purpose as baseball and certain other sports. Um, you know, he kind of suggests maybe the spectacle, the military symbolism and so on. Um, eventually he concludes that it's pretty obviously the violence the sheer violence and pain that is dished out in these uh, matches is <laughs> absolutely what everybody is is waiting to see. You know, at the moment when Richard Sherman's arm is hanging off, uh, you know, like a broken wing, that's what people are, are turning on to see. You know, they want to see people uh, smashing into each other and, you know, coughing up blood on the on the sideline. I mean, that's... Uh, but that apparently happened with one player. I hadn't realised that in one of the championship games that he taken a pretty bad blow and was coughing up blood. The, funny enough, the NFL over the last few years is, is less violent than it was and they have made strides, completely forced to do so by the lawsuit regarding the concussions and just the general tenor of the coverage 
of their sport. I think they realise they have to make some some changes. But still, yeah, v- v- violence is a pretty um, it's a pretty central theme too. I mean, he al- he also makes the point that that America appears to prefer to dwell on this type of football violence rather than the actual violence that. Um that uh, it uh, perpetrates around the world. It's, it's funny. It's it's a double edge. There's, as I mentioned, the piece. I, f- I do feel uncomfortable now watching some games when uh, you see you see a player go down. It's the concussion is what's really brought it all home, um, because it seems it's it's almost the most spectacular version of what of some. It's probably the most spectacular, certainly the most uh, I guess newsworthy in a way uh, injury and the most disturbing in some ways to see, uh, especially the more we learn about concussion as most people have done over the last couple of years. But there's no doubt that as supporters we enjoy a lot of what we're seeing as well. I mean there was a grim fascination in watching Sexton take those, make those tackles and even take on Matthew Bassero physically, seeing how he could then perform, which he did for the most part. I thought when he came back on, actually, having been off, his game fell, fell, fell away a little bit, but I think the Irish team under quite a lot of pressure at that stage. So there's no doubt that, you, particularly in a sport like rugby, like American football, you want to see a certain amount of violence. I'm not saying you want to see foul play, but uh, the, that part of it, that element of the game certainly exists as a central part to it. And I guess you, you have to wrestle with that as a, as a supporter. Are you happy enough to watch... Are, are we all comfortable with how rugby, in particular, if we take this case, is going over the last uh, over the last n- number of years? Well, rugby is, but it is different. You know, I remember going to my first Irish, my first real Irish international game, with, like the, where there was a lot on the line was Ireland South Africa in I'm going to say 2004, the winter is the, the November international of 2004, and uh, <clears throat> I remember the, the, this was my the first game where you know it was. Obviously, it was a hugely important game. And the kickoff goes to Anthony Foley. And Foley immediately just runs the ball directly back at the biggest South African he can find. And when you grow up watching football or, or you, uh, soccer and you grow up watching Gaelic games, the whole idea of those games is to avoid confrontation, to find space. Not If there is someone in front of you, you try and avoid that person. Rugby is, at its very core different to that. Well, it used to be, I mean, there used to be uh, an argument that there, that's there, what players tried to do, is yeah. find the space. Well, there, well, there, uh, yeah, there is, obviously. But I mean, it's, the the idea of it is that uh, that sort of confrontation is not necessarily a bad thing in rugby, you yeah. know, where it's always a bad thing when, you know, you, when you're in, engaged in a physical confrontation in, in the, those other sports, you know. I just kind of think that's, like, that's it. You know, you kind of have to wrestle with that all you like. But, I mean, I've read that piece as well. And that is it in rugby, I think. You know, that you do... There is a huge amount of admiration for what you, the, the players put themselves through in a rugby game. And that is, of course, part of the appeal. It, it has to be a part of the appeal. And, you know, if there, there are obviously... there are It's increasingly the central part of the appeal, unless you're a real connoisseur of, you know, yeah, rules. Well, that's the point I was trying to make, the, this, that the sex... That, I mean, the Irish team aren't exactly playing sparkling rugby. They're playing winning rugby, but you're not necessarily going along for the quality of their attacking play at the moment. You're going along to watch them win. And it's not just Ireland, it's, it's other teams as well. In most Six Nations games, I wouldn't go as far as Neil, Neil Francis said after the Ireland game, there have been five shit games so far out of five in the Six Nations. I wouldn't go that far. And the, certainly the uh, game between Scotland and Wales ended up being reasonably good. And there were parts of the other games, certainly Ireland, France and Wales, England, that you'd, you'd have to admire. But, Silky attacking rugby doesn't really exist in in the Six Nations to any great extent anymore. So, I mean, what is it's it that not, not always kind of in the case. Though. I mean, when you look back at the Six Nations, have the games not usually been quite kind bad? Kind of reminds well, me. Well, France of have given up though. France, yeah. France have given up. That's the huge thing. There used to always be that one beacon, yeah, and that was many years ago. Yeah. But we're, we're getting a little bit sidetracked. It's there. a bit. It's a bit First World Warish, really. The whole thing now. It's like the the power of the. Um, Defensive is so much; it's just so much greater. I mean, it's just lines of guys smashing into each other. At a, you know, it's just so attritional. Um, I mean, I suppose they seem to be better able to do this now than they were twenty years ago. That's the kind of big difference. That's that all <laughs> the advances in sports science and analysis have essentially made guys well, yeah. better able to just smash into each other repeatedly. There's an email here from Derry Crowdy, second captains at IrishTimes.com, and he suggests a, a solution here. We mentioned one or two possible. 
Uh, there's no solution. I mean, it's, not, it's, not, it's not as though you're, you can't take the violence out of the sport, but I suppose you can mitigate to a certain extent. And he says, restrict the size of the players. In other sports, there are weight restrictions. Boxers and jockeys come to mind. The example I would point to is car racing, Formula One, whereby certain constraints are placed on manufacturers. Why not restrict the total weight of the team plus substitutes, which in turn would bring down the individual mass of the players, you thereby, thereby reducing compare, the impact of collisions? You can't compare car racing with the sport that's played by human beings who are not designed by manufacturers. It's not like everybody can get together and agree that the next generation of human beings will all conform to the same technical specifications. It's it's unfair. But you know, some people, some guys. Yeah, but you know, you still you still don't have weight restrictions. I mean, you still you you still have you've weight classes. Yeah, well, but I suppose what the the idea in boxing Everybody's is that you don't have a, you don't have a, a massive guy fighting an extremely small guy. Yeah, no, you, you know, don't. That, that's but, why it's there. That's but why it's there. always been the case in rugby that that you do have that you do have that situation. There's people, a rule for different guys are, in, are playing different positions. I mean, the, the obvious thing to do would be to remove a player from each side. You know, if there are fewer players on the field and the field is the same size, well, suddenly the players have all just got smaller relative to the field. That's another. That's another uh, um, theory that has been bound. bound well, it opens. It, rugby it, league it, had that it idea opens about space. eighty years ago, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which kind of if there is only thirty players on a rugby union team we're really getting into the realms of just two divisions of uh, the same sport we're also played. speaking as though there's definitely a problem that needs to be addressed and I'm quite aware that a lot of uh, rugby fans a lot of sports fans would uh, would not necessarily see that to be the case it's not as though I think everybody can be agreed that uh, concussion could be handled better but in general the physicality in the sport whether or not that is got to the point where it's actually becoming a, a problem. I, I think it may well be. I'm mm. aware that not everyone necessarily thinks that, so we're not in a position where everybody's saying, "Okay, this is the problem. This is how we fix it." Yeah, and Dennis made a very good point there in that the IRB have shown in the past that when a problem in the game presents itself, that they have actually tried things. You know, obviously, they're, not all of their rule changes have been successful, but they're trying rule changes, and that they have done. That, they haven't know. been. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about rugby; they're always fiddling around with the rules of it, aren't they? So uh, this, this, they don't seem to have that kind of innate conservatism that No, but they, they haven't, they haven't been ama- I, w- I wouldn't say they've been um, brilliant at dealing with the concussion problem uh, certainly up until relatively recently that they're, they've gotten their act together to a, a certain extent and even then you've got Barry O'Driscoll and others arguing that actually the protocols in place at the moment aren't the correct ones so I don't know if they're, you can necessarily say that they've gotten everything right and we can 100% trust them to get this one right it's, it's still a relatively new sport that does have rule changes fairly regularly um, but we'll leave that one for the time being, Ken, because you're going to tell us what's coming up in the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. You can walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What did you want? I'd like to stay alive. I'd say it to you, face. I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield, and we'll see them. What are you doing down here, you shiny man? Well, Owen, it's it's a it's a great day for for football. Yeah. Yeah. Because Tim Sherwood is back. He's just done his news conference at Aston Villa. He's he wants them to get back playing on the front foot. He's going to get them throwing a few punches of their own. Is <laughs> <laughs> he saying this? Yeah, that's yeah. what he's saying. Uh, so, uh, so that's uh, that's one of the things we're going to be talking about. Now. And of course, another another big weekend in the FA Cup. Well, I know how much you adore the FA Cup, so we'll see what we can get out of that. Time now to talk about the opening weekend of the Allianz Hurling League. Jer Cunningham and his Dublin team had the most impressive results over the weekend, winning by two goals and 20 points to 14 points against Tip. We're joined by Christy O'Connor to chat about this. Tip, we, uh, 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 Christy, I should say, we talked earlier on about the options that a new manager has, in this case, Jer Cunningham with Dublin, in terms of whether they leave well enough alone or maybe go and make quite a few positional switches, as he seems to have done with some of his major players. It seems like he's got a very definite idea of what he wants his Dublin team to do. Absolutely, all. I suppose look at the first thing, you know, really, I think he tried 33 players in the Walsh Cup, so, you know, there was a real sense of fairness about it that, you know, everybody was getting game time, everybody was getting a chance, and, you know, Jerry even said it yesterday in his post-match interview that, you know, that the team was picked on, I suppose, to form in the Walsh Cup, but, you know, as you mentioned, the big thing was, I suppose, to structure the team, and, you know, he would have raised, I suppose, a few eyeballs, given, I suppose, putting Liam Rush full forward for a start, right, Mikey Carton full back, um, you know, or Peter Kelly centre back, like, and you know, I suppose there's been a few things tried before, like you know, Amber Dick was telling me one time before that, um, 
he tried Mikey Carton full back uh, a couple of years ago on a challenge and Shane O'Donnell took him for 2-2 and um, you know I suppose that they, they dispensed with that but I suppose that was the one thing that struck me most about uh, Dublin yesterday lads well one of the things that struck me most apart from uh, you know an excellent performance was how authoritative and how commanding Mikey Carton looked at full back and you know, I suppose he, he's Alan Olin's best friend um, Noel he was his best man for when Mikey got married there before Christmas so that's another big thing that there's a great trust and understanding and bond between the goalkeeper and the full-back. Like, and I thought that was very evident as well yesterday. So, um, you know, like Peter Kelly is one of these guys that has an unbelievable, his unbelievable pace, uh, just a really explosive player. And Peter Kelly is a guy that, you know, let's say when you're a centre-back now and um, even just looking at the Lake Regale uh, on Kieran Carey the other, the other night, like you, you just even, I suppose, looked at brought it back home how much of an attacking centre-back Kieran Carey was and you just even feel with Peter Kelly that if he gets into open territory as a centre-back you know could really be a, a, an attacking you know threatening centre-back and maybe so, that's something that Jerry's looking at as well um, you know and rush full forward I suppose the big thing with Dublin last year lads probably was the lack of goal scoring one goal in three championship matches has been an issue I suppose it was a bit of an issue under Dalo um, you know Rush now has got three four I think in you know, between the Walsh Cup and the league. And um, I suppose the big thing about Rush going up there is he just gives a different focus, a focal point for their attack. Like, that. you know, obviously Dublin have had a very defined style under Taylor, but, um, you know, when you are in trouble, you can pump it up to Rush. And, you know, big man, you know, very, very commanding under the dropping ball, used to playing that, you know, to used to doing that as a centre-back. Now, obviously, it's a different uh, role when you're playing as a full forward. But I think, look at, all the signs so far, like Eamon Dillon won two yesterday, another guy with explosive pace, guy who's been on the you know fringes the last few years, very, very good player. Um, you know, Connell Keane even going to wing back yesterday. Just something different, but um, you know, two fifteen from play lads in Parnell Park in the first uh day out in February against a team that could have won the All Ireland last year. You have to say whatever Jarrah's done done today, it definitely worked yesterday. The challenge with Rush at full forward, it strikes me as uh, as the year progresses, it could be similar to the challenge Galway face when Joe Canning goes in there, and um, the the worry is if if the team gets suffocated at all further out the field, you're wasting potentially your most talented player in the full forward line. I guess that's just uh, that's just that's just that just goes to the territory of somebody playing in that position. Yeah, I suppose, look, at the, the big thing with that, on is that it really now is the time to check all that stuff out. And I suppose, look, you've seen it with Joe where, you know, maybe if Galway were struggling, they were chasing game, they'd put Joe in, you know. They, it's the same with Liam Rush, I suppose, that they have the option of, um, you know, bringing him back out. And I suppose, look, you have to probably stick with it during the league and see if it, if it is going to work. They know what Rush can do off the field. They know what he can do. And I suppose what's forgotten as well is that Rush began his career you know, with Dublin up in the forward. He began began it in the full forward line, wing forward even. So, you know, it's just something, maybe a different focus. Maybe it, it's, it's even re-energising Liam Rush a bit after, you know, maybe last year he might might have felt he could have done better, even though he had a decent year. So, you know, I suppose it's just looking at this. But I think the, the big thing with Dublin as well is that, um, you know, that I suppose they're just trying different, even, even playing Eamon Dillon centre-forward, maybe a guy that, you know, maybe centre forward is, is not a position that you know you might have thought he was that, that he was suited to. But this guy is explosive pace. Um, you know, even even the young guys they brought in, um, you know, that they all look to have something different about them. And not not that not I suppose okay, a new manager will always bring a little bit of freshness. Um, but you know, they, they just seem to be good confidence about Dublin yesterday. Now, obviously, you have to say it as well. Factor in the tip were very poor. Right? Like tip at eleven wide in the first half. You know, looking, I suppose, clinically a tip, you could probably say John O'Dwyer is probably the only guy who would, you could say, would be happy with his performance. So you have to factor all that in as well. But I suppose for Dublin, really, in this league, when many people had tipped them to be relegated, um, the first thing is you have to win your home games. Um, you know, if you even look at it last year, the two teams were in the relegation final, um, Dublin and Watford. You know, I suppose the split had gone against them. They had, they had only two uh, home games. Uh, Dublin won their two home games lost the games on the road so I suppose when, when, when you're starting out you've got home games you have to try and bank them right and I suppose that's the big thing with Dublin yes and obviously we'll probably know more after going to Nolan Park on Sunday and look at the Dubs are well aware of all that they know that you know this is the ultimate challenge going down there but it's great for their confidence and I think they, you know, they'd be relishing the, 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 the challenge out going down to Nolan Park coming on the back of such a positive display yeah, and I mean, Dublin are one of those teams that you would look at uh, Division 1A of the league and say, right, 
they're a team that need a few wins, that need uh, a little something to hang their hat on ahead of the championship. Another team that you could put into that bracket, I think, are, are Clare. I mean, you look at the style in which the under-21s won their third All-Ireland in a row, and that's like that's the last thing we remember about Clare Hurling from 2014. Clare people shouldn't be expecting anything less than an All-Ireland final appearance this year, you would think, given the fact that they're the last team other than Kilkenny to win the, the senior All-Ireland. Um you know, are they a team that that needs a good league? And you look at how they lost uh, yesterday to Galway with a last minute uh, free in rather controversial circumstances. Do Clare need to show something this year? Are they under a little bit of pressure from uh, the the fans down there? Well, first of all, when you're dead right, like the expectation is huge. Now, um, you know, so that brings its own pressure in a way. But so like a lot of these guys, a lot of these Clare boys, the young fellas in particular, you know. A lot of them have won, you know, three All Ireland twenty ones. Like there's, there's some players, there's some players like the likes of uh, Colin Galvin, um, Peter Dogan. There's, there's five clear player twenty ones that never actually lost an underage game in Munster and minor under twenty one. Like they won two Munster minors, three Munster under twenty ones, three All Ireland twenty ones. You know, uh, most of them have All Ireland senior medals. Like these guys know nothing else, only winning, right? Winning big, um, winning big games. So, so that's the first thing that's different about Clare maybe in the past. That, you know, when Clare were, let's say, coming back in 97 trying to win that All-Ireland, there were still doubts there, you know, that they had won an All-Ireland in 95. Could they repeat it? Um, you know, you could say that Clare in one sense maybe have tried to replicate the template from 97 in that they've trained absolutely unbelievably hard over the winter. Um, you know, very, very hard, similar to what Clare did in 97. Um and I, I would have, I suppose yesterday was a funny kind of a game because, you know, I know the Galway have trained hard as well. You know, Salt Hill is never really a, a venue that you can predict. You don't know what's going to happen, I suppose, with the weather and how, how both teams are going to, you know, adjust to the breeze. And the funny thing about yesterday was both teams nearly seemed to play better against the breeze than with the breeze. But um, to go back to your point about Clare, um, huge expectation. I would have thought myself that Clare were a team that you could definitely say are going to make the quarterfinals because... That given that the workload they have done, um, you know, now losing yesterday does put them under pressure, and I suppose it really puts the focus on Saturday night's game in Cork. Clear having to go away again. Cork now under massive pressure after a flat enough performance on Saturday night. Um, you know, big big things expected from Cork this year, and really if you lose your first, like whoever loses on Saturday night, would have lost the first two games. You know, can't really afford to lose again. So. That, re- that raises the stakes big time. Yep. Chrissy, brilliant stuff as ever. Thanks a million. Thank you, lads. Cheers. Andrew, that's the question. That's going to be asked, answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight. Tonight. Into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight. Their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. No, I think Cork have made a massive boo-boo with our matchups. Massive boo-boo. Tonight, 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 tonight. Ooh. Yeah, this thing of Claire going back and training hard, similar to what they did in 1997. I'm sure Chrissy doesn't mean it. They're, they're using the same techniques, mm. but the ethos behind it, we go back, we train harder. Not sure how much harder any team can train, particularly a team under David Fitzgerald, who I assume were working their asses off Last yeah. so last winter as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, I presume it's uh, the the idea of it is that you <laughs> you have a humbling year, and then that that breaks you down, and you try and build up again on the training field. I, I think that's the that's the mm. psychology of it. I mean, I presume the sports science element of it is going to be pretty much the same as what it's always been, with a few tweaks here and there. So, I mean, may, maybe that's what he that's what Christy means more so than anything else that. You you work hard. That there's sort of a cleansing uh, that happens out on the training field that allows you to forget about 2014 and uh, try and recapture some. Yeah, of the magic. maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm still, but by implication, that means that they didn't get it right last year in terms of how they trained during. The, yeah. or maybe they didn't just because they had won the All Ireland the year before. This this could be what we hear about is the difficulty in retaining these titles. No matter what you think you're doing during the winter, it might necessarily prove to. Uh, you, you might need that year off and winning to to get back on the horse. But just uh, to mention, the, I had never heard this theory before, Murph, that 
a goalkeeper and a full-back need to be buzzing buddies. In this case, Alan Nolan needs to have Mikey Carton, his fullback, as his best man at his wedding yeah. in order to fully function together. I think that, you know, that's the sort of thing that you're, that's the sort of commitment that Jerk Cunningham is asking of these players. <laughs> Even know? if they don't like each other. Midfield partners. M- making I mean, each other best men you know, at the wedding. I mean, I, don't, I, I hope I don't even have to say this, midfielders for Dublin, you know, but if one of you guys are taking the plunge, yeah. you know what to do, okay? Yeah. Uh, Particularly any of the, star, Liam Rush, say one of the star players, Conal Keeney, one of these guys, if you could maybe take one of the substitutes, yeah. one of the guys just leadership on the fringes. Going. Yeah, that's make leadership. him your best man. Yeah, that's, that's real leadership. Christy O'Connor, who's just on there, is involved in organising a 10k run, jog, walk. I just want to mention this. It's at his club, St. Joseph's Door, Bearfield, in Gertie in County Clare. It's on Saturday, 7th of March, and it's all for a very good cause. So if you're around that neck of the woods, www.hurleyhoey10km.com. That's Hurley and then Hoey, H-O-E-Y, 10, the number 10, K-M, uh, dot com for details yeah and if you uh, if you read Christie's book The Club you'd know all about uh, Ger Hoey and how important he is to St. Joseph so do check that out if you're in the area we've got the football podcast coming up a little bit later on just a reminder to check out uh, we had Dennis Hickey on the programme earlier on and he's going to be one of our guests in the Irish Times second captain sports night with the Rabo Direct takes place next Monday night the 23rd of February and if you want to be able to, go, to go along there check out irishtimes.com forward slash second captains for details you want to do that today or early tomorrow and I'm speaking on a Monday here because the deadline for ticket applications is Tuesday so it's irishtimes.com forward slash second captains that's the Irish Times second captain sports night with Rabo Direct next Monday thanks very much Kieran. thank you Owen thank you Ken thanks thank very you much you again. too Kieran. thank you Owen and thanks for listening. Take care. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.